Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Scott Stursa. We're at his home in Corvallis on July 17th, 2023. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for, for dropping by. First question is why wine? Well, I like wine. I've liked it for a long time. I uh, didn't think much of it when I was a kid because we occasionally had wine at the house. Uh, once a month we had spaghetti night Mom would pick up a bottle of the Chianti in the basket, and um, I never quite understood what the what all the big deal was. Uh, but uh, in the late '70s, I um, had a new girlfriend. She was uh, a New Yorker, fairly wealthy background, and um, she got me into gourmet cooking and fine wine and and. Um, single malt scotch and all that stuff that I couldn't really afford at the time, but bought anyway. Um, my first love, I think, was Bordeaux, um, followed by California Cabernets. And uh, I tried Pinot Noir, but uh, Noir. Um, and the California ones that I tried just weren't cutting it. And the Burgundies that I tried that I could afford weren't cutting it. And it wasn't until I exceeded my budget and bought an expensive one that I realized, well, there may be something to this this Pinot Noir grape after all. Um, when we um, started looking for another place to live, um, because we were kind of ready to leave Tallahassee, Florida, which is where I was raised and where I met my wife. Um, we were looking around for other areas and Oregon seemed like a good prospect. And uh, I knew there were some really good Pinot Noirs being produced here. Um, so we came out here on vacation in 2005 and hit a bunch of wineries along with uh, the other standard tourist stops like Multnomah Falls and, and um, um, Crater Lake. Uh, and uh, decided, yeah, we'd like to live here and, and the, the, the good wine would be a bonus. And so I started looking for positions and, and eventually found one here in Corvallis. And um, worked in that, it was an IT position, it was a small local firm. Um, and uh, worked in IT up until uh, about early 2016 and I had started working on a, a book on the history of, of distillation in the state. Um, and it was a, just kind of a hobby project, a back burner kind of project. And when I retired in, in 2016, um, I was able to turn my full attention to that. Mm -hmm. and. I like to, to tell people that with that book, the first, first half took four years and the second half took four months. Um, but I approached uh, History Press and they were receptive. And um, so I got that book published in early 2017. 
and uh, it did well and got good reviews and um, um, I've seen it for sale at, at a number of craft distilleries around the state so uh, so I felt like well the next thing should be a book on Oregon wine the history of Oregon wine and and one of the driving things on that was that no one had ever done it. There are plenty of books out there on the history of winemaking in California. And there's a couple of guys, I forget their names, a couple of authors did a history on Washington state wine. Uh, one of them is a professor at one of the Washington universities. I can't recall their names off the top of my head. But they did a very good history of, of winemaking in Washington. And there was nothing like that for Oregon. What there was typically was a, a fairly standardized little one-page thing in a lot of the books about the contemporary winemaking scene in Oregon, which referenced a few things that happened in the 1900s and, and the story of David Ladd and Charles Curry coming in in the 60s and so forth. And these all read so identically that I realized all people are doing is just um, repeating what they've read in somebody else's book. And then they would move on to whatever it is they really wanted to talk about in the, the current Oregon wine scene. And I felt like that wasn't enough. Oregon wine deserved better than that. And um, it was a very educational experience. I had some suspicions that there was more going on in, in, in winemaking and viticulture in Oregon pre-prohibition than most people realized. But even I was surprised, because the more I dug, the more I found, and um, uh, discovered a number of things that, for example, uh, uh, Pinot Noir was being, Pinot Noir, I tend to drop the R, um, was being grown in, in Oregon, pre-prohibition. Uh, Peter Britt was growing it down there in Jackson County, and you had uh, at least two, possibly three people growing it in the Willamette Valley. So um, there was that. Uh, one of the people who was recorded as growing uh, Pinot Noir, or what it was called Burgundy at, at the time, um, was uh, Friedrich and his son Ernest Reuter up near Forest Grove. And one of the things that you saw over and over again was that how they had won this gold medal in the, in the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. And he ran into this everywhere. If you Googled it, Reuter 1904 medal, you'd get dozens of hits. And even the Oregon Historical Society uh, had done this traveling panel display, and they, they mentioned it there. And because my goal with both of these books was to produce something that would pass academic muster, um, I felt the need to do a lot of original research and, you know, really dig into things. And as, as you've, you've seen the book, so you know it's very heavily footnoted with over 220 source citations. And um, apparently I was the first person to ever bother to contact the Missouri Historical Society and ask to see the results of the competition in the fair. And the Reuters weren't there, no Oregon wine was there. I looked at the um, list of entries and 
no Oregon wines there either. So I kept digging and I found interviews with particularly Ernest Reuter uh, in the early 1900s and he's making claims about medals in a number of uh, fairs. And so I had to research every one of them. Turns out three of them, they entered and they won silver medals in two of them and a bronze medal in, in one. But St. Louis wasn't one of them. Paris wasn't one of them. Um, so it, it's very unfortunate that what has come down uh, on that um, is one that they claim to have won but didn't. And I think the whole thing got started when Charles Curry bought the old Reuter property in the 1960s, two of Ernest Reuter's sisters, who were in their 80s by this time um, and lived down the road, uh, wandered over and, and it, it introduced themselves. And they told Charles Curry about the 1904 win at St. Louis. He told a couple of writers that came around, there were a couple of books published in 77 that were the first um, books uh, that, that dealt with Pacific Northwest winemaking. And uh, Curry was interviewed by both of these sets of authors and he repeated the story. And then over the years, oh, and the original story was that it was Riesling and it was a silver medal. And over the years it morphed. It turned into a gold medal and then somebody proposed that it was a grape known as Clevenar which they think was probably Pinot Blanc. Well, this actually a list of the grapes that they grew that was published in a uh, uh, publication by the Oregon um, Agricultural College, which is OSU today. And Pinot Blanc is not in there. Riesling is, and so, um, it's known that he did produce Riesling and, and his Riesling was pretty good, but it certainly wasn't producing Pinot Blanc. And as I said before, they didn't even win any medal. So, you know, I would hope that they'd rather be known for winning medals in the three um, World's Fairs that they actually entered as opposed to a medal that they didn't win for a wine they didn't make made from a grape they didn't grow. And I think one measure of success of my book is that if you go out there now and you Google that same string, it shows up in two places now and that's it. One unfortunately is David Hill Winery where I guess somebody just doesn't like the idea of being wrong and would rather have that medal that wasn't one as opposed to the three that were. And the other is the Wikipedia article on history of Oregon wine. That was written by Lisa Shara Hall and she died I think uh, in 2018, the year before my book was came out. So she has a pretty good excuse for, for not updating it. And I suppose I should try to learn the markup language used by Wikipedia and correct it myself, but I just haven't gotten to it yet. <laughs>
Well, I'm going to come back and talk more about the book. I have many questions about the book, but let's talk about um, sort of life before Oregon for you. You mentioned growing up in Tallahassee. Uh, tell me about uh, education and career after, uh, after you grew up in Tallahassee. My original plans for my career were to um, go into academia, and um, I was focused mostly on history, and that's what I started out as, as a history major. And I had been encouraged by a number of teachers, two in high school and um, one in college, to write as a career because I'd written stories for class assignments and was told by all three of, of, of these teachers that I could make a career out of this. Um, I didn't pursue that. Um, and uh, I think if I'd stuck with my original plan of getting a PhD in history and, and teaching, I could have written these kind of books uh, as part of, part of that career. Um, unfortunately, I made some bad decisions. And uh, I think what prompted it was there was kind of a glut of PhDs at that time, and I was concerned about getting, um, getting a job at a, a, at a university where I would actually want to be as opposed to some community college in East Jesus, Texas. Uh, and I took a psychology course and um, made an impression on the professor and I found out that he was very well connected with, um, with uh, that particular discipline of, of experimental psychology and that his major professor had been the guy that's kind of was the, uh, the top dog in that particular branch of psychology um, who was at University of Wisconsin in Madison and I didn't have any strong intrinsic interest in psychology it was a calculated move to just ensure that I'd end up someplace I liked mm -hmm. so I switched to psychology and ended up in Madison Wisconsin working for Leonard Berkowitz and um, that didn't go well. I tried switching to Purdue University the following year uh, where I was working with a really great guy, but at the same time was becoming progressively disaffected with, with, uh, with the whole discipline. Um, and one of the things that I had going on concurrently is always been something of a geek. Uh, uh, I was interested in computers. As soon as I got into college, I started uh, taking classes at the FSU Computing Center and was doing some custom programming for experimental and excuse me, experimental analysis. And at Purdue, this word got around and they actually pulled me out of the class that I was teaching so that I could spend more time writing custom software for the faculty. <laughs> which aroused a certain amount of unpleasantness because one of the research assistant grad students got pulled in to teach my class, which he wasn't happy about. Uh, but at the end of two years, I, I realized I could not make a career out of something that I didn't believe in. And I just 
I remember a morning there in my little basement apartment in Lafayette, Indiana, looking in the mirror and just saying, can you spend your life doing this nonsense? And I realized, no, I can't, I just can't. And I went in and I told my professor that day, I said, don't try to get funding for me next year because I'm not going to be here. And so I went back to Tallahassee and I leveraged my IT experience into a job with uh, a state agency writing a statistical analysis software. And uh, I kind of got bored with that, so I moved on to systems programming. I kind of got bored with that, so I moved on to networking. And found myself positioned to be involved with the state's effort in the early 1980s to create a statewide computer network that um, um, served all branches of education, uh, universities, community colleges, and K through 12. Uh, that was very challenging. It was a, a changing period. Uh, I realized very early on that the future laid with internet technology. Um, but to d deal with the, the short-term requirements, we had to use uh, kind of a blend of IBM proprietary technology as well as uh, um, ISO-based international standards organization technology. But by the early 90s, we were migrating to IP. And, uh, I started a project, uh, an initiative in 1988 to get all nine of the state universities on the internet. And um, California had already done that, and Michigan, which only has two state universities, had already done that. So Florida was the second state with a number of universities, more than two, to get all of them on the internet. And so that's something that, that I did. I was in that position until 1995. Uh, I got a consulting offer from Sprint and went to work for them for about a year and a half. Um, they had a cash flow problem and um, let me and two other consultants that they'd hired at the same time let us all go. Uh, I went back to FSU, got a job with the uh, Academic Computing Center, and in a few years, um, I was specializing in cybersecurity, and so I became essentially the, the cyber cop. Do you remember Napster? I achieved a some level of notoriety of being the guy who shut down Napster on the FSU campus. My name was cursed in all of the dormitories. Dark, dark days indeed. Yes. So, uh, when we moved out here, most of the work I did out here, I worked for a number of firms. Uh, left the Corvallis Forum in 2013, ultimately ended up in a position in, in Eugene. Um, well, probably the best job I ever had, certainly the best supervisor I ever had. Um, and uh, unfortunately that didn't last because it was a private company, the owner wanted to retire. He sold it to a, a company in San Diego that was doing similar kind of work. They were not a well-managed company, and very soon they were having to lay off many people, both in San Diego and in Eugene. Uh, they already had an IT auditor with the San Diego company, and her responsibilities overlapped quite a bit with mine. And so in January of 2016, I and uh, 22 other people 
uh, were just all laid off. Um, and that's when I decided to, to go ahead and take an early retirement. I was 63 and uh, start work on the distilling book. What were the other kind of technological breakthroughs you saw while you were working in that career? Um, well, I'd say that the internet technology was essentially it. Um, what we were dealing with when we were building the Florida Information Resource Network, which is what it was called, FERN, uh, was that to accommodate the range of computer systems that we found in public education, uh, you had to implement a lot of what in the jargon of IT were known as kludges. And so to like move a, a file, um, um, you know, a big file, a student record file or something from a school district to the Department of Education in Tallahassee, which was a requirement. They had to do it five times a year. And part of the reason for the network was it would speed the thing up, right? Because they had been putting it on magnetic tape and shipping it. Um, and to do that across the multiple vendor environments was extremely difficult. And I actually wrote a manual in the early 80s that was set up as a matrix. And it was basically, okay, you're on a Univac system and you want to send to an IBM, here's how you do it. You're on a Burroughs system and you want to send to a Digital Equipment Corporation computer, here's how you do it. So it was a different technique in every case. And then sometime in the mid 80s, I was down at University of Florida where they had just hooked up to the internet and uh, one of the guys down there, David Picorni, showed me, he says, I'm going to show you how we move a file from the IBM mainframe here to one of the decks over at IFAS. And he signed on, he issued an FTP command, he connected, he entered a command that got him to a directory. Um, he issued a command that uploaded the file to the other computer, and then he closed the connection. And he says, now I'm going to show you how, how it's done going from uh, a Univac to a Burroughs that are running Mm -hmm. IP stack issued the same commands. This is the same everywhere. And he said, this is why this is going to succeed. Because it's universal. Once you've learned how to do an IP application on one type of computer, you'll discover that that same technique works on every other kind of computer. And this is going to drive consumer demand. You know, right now you have all these data centers in the state and they're kind of in the pockets of their vendors and they're telling their users, well, our way is the best. The IBM way is the best and we're looking out for your interest and this, trust us, this is the best. And by the mid-90s, the user community, particularly in the universities, was pushing back hard against these data center directors and saying, no, this is better, this is easier to use, this is universal. We hook up to the internet, Stursa got us hooked up back in 89, and we can exchange email and files with academic colleagues across the world. And so um, it was really the, the, the simplicity and the, uh, uh, 
the, the universality of, of IP and the applications that ran on top of it that, that brought it in, into play. And of course, then there was the World Wide Web. Um, and I jumped on that fairly early, about the same time that I started working at Sprint. One of my other interests, I've always been a, a nature nut, a tree hugger. And um, uh, I started a website in 1995 called Wild Florida Online. And I uh, was putting out articles about various places in Florida where, that were interesting. And a lot of them were kind of off the beaten path. Um, and so I was doing that for a number of years. Uh, I think I didn't shut it down until 2003. The uh, URL, the domain name is still in use. It's passed f from several pe people to, to uh, the current people. Interesting, it kind of evolved. Uh, the next person who had it was turned it into a, a reptile identification site. And then there was another one that was just kind of highlighting his photography. It's now with somebody who's kind of restored it to my original vision. So it's, it's still out there. Um, so I was combining that particular interest with, with um, both my writing skills and my, my uh, technology skills. So between the, between the internet technology and the World Wide Web, how did your job change? How did, how did that change the, the, the things you had to do and the, and the kind of responsibilities you had? Well, as I say, I ended up specializing in, in cybersecurity over the last 20 years. And I guess it's just human nature that when something new comes along, there's a category of people that, that, that ask themselves, well, how can I use this thing to my own advantage uh, to make money that I don't deserve to, to, to have? Um, or just mess with things. Uh, and I think I was taking that kind of personally in the sense that, you know, I had been promoting the internet, particularly in the early 90s, after I had the universities uh, hooked up. I started talking to the community colleges and the public school districts, so I was a big promoter of the internet. And then here comes the hackers trying to ruin it for everybody. And so I, I kind of took that personally. And I said, well, I'm gonna stop these guys. So that's why I got into cybersecurity. So that was probably the, the internet catching on and the World Wide Web catching on um, and the unfortunate uh, byproduct of, of hackers and, and spammers and, and all of that and appsters. Uh, I just felt like, well, I, I want to fight that. That's the good fight. Mm -hmm. Try to keep these people at bay. Try to keep it a, a good thing for everybody who's trying to, to use it for good things. So that was probably the biggest Im impact on what I was doing, was it pushed me into cybersecurity work. So you talked earlier about the distillation book, Distilled in Oregon, being kind of the first project and the kind of the back burner project. So why that topic specifically as you were working, kind of you had your day job, why did this Distilled in Oregon become something you wanted to work on? Well, I did have an interest in spirits. And I think it, it got started, uh, I was doing a lot of business with a liquor store down in Eugene that made an effort to, to get more than the, the ordinary fare. 
in. It's, um, you know, if, if, you, if you aren't really into spirits much yourself, you may not be aware. You know, Oregon is a control state and um, all the hard liquor is actually the property of the state until the moment you buy it. And the liquor stores don't actually own their stock. These guys are agents and they get a commission. So all the revenue goes to the OLCC, which turns around and sends a cut back to the liquor store owner. Um, and you can't sell something in a liquor store that the OLCC hasn't, hasn't purchased and made available to you. Um, so to get some of the more esoteric stuff requires special effort and these guys did that. So I did a lot of business down there um, with this one store. And I was in there one day, I think in um, 2010, 2011, somewhere in there. And the, uh, the proprietor's son was talking to me and he said, you know, I had these two guys in here that are planning on starting a craft whiskey distillery. And uh, I told them about you because you seem to be very knowledgeable about all this. And they want to talk to you. So can they give you a call? And I said, yeah, sure. And um, these were the guys who were starting uh, Hard Times Distillery. I talked to them and they showed me what they were going to be doing. Their plan was to make rye whiskey and they found themselves a space down in Monroe, down south of Corvallis here. And, uh, and this kind of triggered my interest in, in the whole this craft distilling movement, which I knew about Clear Creek up there in Portland because they had been around for a while and actually had run into one of my favorite liquor stores in Tallahassee carried some of the, the Clear Creek brandies. And I had tried and fallen in love with their apple brandy, the eight-year-old one, not the two-year-old one. The two-year-old one is okay, but it's, it's really best for, for making, adding to hot apple cider. Um, but the eight-year-old one, I'd put that up against any Calvado from France. Um, but I was blissfully unaware that, that both in Oregon and across the country there was this whole burgeoning craft distilling movement. And talking to Dudley and his partner, uh, I learned all about this. And I was thinking, well, wow, I wonder if there's enough of them to do like a, a, a guidebook to the distiller, excuse me, the distilleries of Oregon, kind of like the wine books that, that list them out and you can read it and decide which wineries you want to visit. And so I started looking into it, and at least at that point in time, which I think was about 2012, there simply weren't enough of them to do that. So I said, well, you're good with research. Why don't you do a, a book on the history of distilling in the state, see what was going on back when. And, um, and that took a lot of work because 2012, there wasn't really all that much stuff digitized yet. So it actually required going places. Uh, Southern Oregon Historical Society had to go down there to, to uh, Medford for a couple of days, dig through their files, got a lot of help. What I found with historical societies is that they're mostly manned by volunteers and most of them are retired and most of them don't have anything to do. So I walked in there and told them what I was looking for, and I suddenly had six folks digging through files for me. But uh, 
and learned a lot, discovered a lot, uh, went up to the, um, the federal archives in Seattle and uh, went into the old IRS files and learned about uh, all kinds of interesting people who were producing illegal stuff during Prohibition. And uh, so like I say, uh, it was a back burner project, so I was doing about um, uh, four years of, of work. And then when I finally got there in 2016 and, and started working on it full time, I realized, you know, in the four years, enough craft distilleries had started in Oregon that you actually could have done a book that was just nothing but a guide to the distilleries. So I kind of combined the two of them. So uh, there's a list of all Oregon distilleries um, as of 2016 in here. Now there's been an enormous amount of change in, in that time and I knew that was coming because I don't know if you've ever looked at this book but the very the title of the introduction is this book is obsolete. So there's been a lot of changes um, and uh, uh, I suppose somebody should update it but um, I'm just not inclined to do that. I've got other things I want to work on. But this is a good starting point for anybody who wants to do that. Um, a lot of failures. Uh, Dudley's hard times went out of business during COVID. Uh, a lot of businesses did. Um, and uh, of course the, the biggest thing that happened is Clear Creek was acquired by um, Hood River Distillers. So, and they were very helpful. I got this book that's in, um, this photograph that's in the, uh, the wine book showing David Lett delivering Pomas to Steve McCarthy of Clear Creek. That's a, a shot that, um, that um, Hood Rivers Distillers made available to me. When you set out to, to kind of write the book, and then especially as you sort of focused on it post-retirement, what was the goal? What were you hoping that the end result would, would be and slash what, would, what was the audience going to be? Well, and this is true of both books, um, I wanted to get the story out there of, you know, what had really happened, partly because there were a lot of misconceptions, particularly on the wine side. Uh, if, if you've read the wine book, so you know I talk about, I'm actually generated a list of what I call Oregon wine myths, and I wanted to dispel those. But I've always been a believer that, that the, the truth is more interesting than fiction. And, and uh, I mean, the perfect example is the Reuters and their medals. Forget about the non-existent medal from, from St. Louis. They won medals at three other world's fairs. Let's focus on that. Um, so, you know, when, I, when I'm doing research, a lot of times I'll run across something and I just say, well, this has to be, this is a story that has to be told. Mm -hmm. People need to know about this, partly because they're believing, what they're currently believing isn't correct, and partly because it's just an interesting story. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, you know, when I finish my current project, um, I have been talking about uh, a, a, a historical novel 
for, for some time and I'm going to get, finally get started on that. I'd actually started that when COVID hit and suddenly the places I wanted to go to do research I couldn't get into because they were closed. The state archives in Salem, for example, shut down. And so that I got detoured into this other project. Uh, but I'm about to, to resume it again. And um, that's um, a story that's, that's roughly based on an incident that occurred in 1914 that I learned about when I was researching the distilling book. And that was the infamous and notorious town of Copperfield, Oregon, and how a young woman by the name of, of Fern Hobbs, Charlotte Fern Hobbs, was sent by the governor to go in and clean up the town, which she did. She had a detachment of state militia with her, um, but shut down all the saloons, arrested the saloon owners, confiscated all the booze, and because she was an attorney, um, she represented the state when uh, the saloon owners sued and won. Uh, she won, the state won, took it all the way to the Oregon Supreme Court. And so Ms. Hobbs was an interesting character and um, I just decided uh, it'd be nice to write a book about her. Um, and, but rather than a straight biology biography, um, I decided I'd rather spice it up a little bit and, and and introduce a, a romance element and uh, um, structure the story around that with the historical events being the backdrop to, um, to the fictional story itself. Tell me about the, the sort of the feedback you got or the, 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 the reception of the distilled book and as you set out to write the Oregon wine book, was there anything uh, from the from the reception from the first one that changed how you handled the second one? Hmm, that's a great question. To some degree, it was a de deliberate shift in focus and attitude. Um, the distilling book was kind of breaking new ground and it was in a field uh, dealing with a subject where you know, not everybody takes things super seriously. And so if you read the two books, you realize I'm a lot less serious than this one. Now, I try to do good research. I've got 150-odd source citations in here. But along with that, I have things like um, this diagram of the ethanol molecule. <laughs> Where the oxygen and, and, and carbon atoms are smiling, but the hydrogen atoms are frowning. And it's because the uh, hydrogen is a sullen, bitter element, believing itself unfairly blamed for the Hindenburg disaster. So, oh, and a diagram of a simple still, okay? A pot still, so simple a hillbilly could build one, you know? So, with the organ wine, one thing I realized very early on was that there's a lot of controversy. There's old feuds that are unresolved to this day. David Lett and Charles Curry, for example. And I realized, okay, you've really, in this one, you've really got to be on your game. You've got to make sure all of your sources are 
are correct um, because this one's going to have more visibility and there's stakeholders. And um, so it's a more serious tone and uh, as I say, it's got, it's has about 50% more source citations. It was more exhaustively researched. And, uh, and I honestly feel it's a book that could pass academic muster. It could be, if I were a professor at a university, the university press would be happy to have published it right in the form that it's in. Maybe not with the color photographs. <laughs> you talked earlier about, about the Reuter and the kind of the, the, myth, the Reuter myth that you, that you dug into. What were some other Oregon wine myths as you talked about or other threads you found that particularly fascinated you as you were doing the research for the Oregon wine? Well, one of the things I thought was interesting was um, the types of grapes that they're growing pre-prohibition, because it wasn't the same set. They, uh, there were, you know, a handful of guys who were doing Pinot Noir, um, but most of the uh, red wine that was being made in Oregon pre-prohibition was Zinfandel, and that was kind of the California influence. Um, also, uh, you know, today the vast majority of viticulture in, in Oregon is happening in the Willamette Valley. And, you know, Columbia Valley and Southern Oregon are kind of considered secondary, uh, which a number of people in Southern Oregon are kind of defensive about. But, um, and in pre-Prohibition Oregon, it was a little more distributed. And really, the hotbed of, um, of Oregon winemaking in the 1800s was Southern Oregon. And I think that's largely because it was so close to California. And a number of those people, like uh, the Van Pessel brothers and the Adolf Dorner, no, Albert Dorner, Adolf was his son, um, uh, had worked in the California industry, wine industry. They'd uh, all worked for Behringer. And in fact, that's where they got their grapes. The vines that they planted in Southern Oregon all came from Behringer in Napa Valley. Um, and uh, there was a peculiar grape, and I'm sorry to say it's, I didn't make many mistakes in this book, but you've seen my little one-page um, errata and addenda that I like to hand out to anybody that I can. Um, and this, if there's a second edition of this book, this is all going to be in there. Uh, there was a grape that they called Black Hamburg. And I did some quick cursory research on that and, and concluded incorrectly that it was Black Muscat. And that's how I identify it in the book. Um, it's not black muscat. It's actually one of the parent grapes. Uh, black muscat was created by a British um, viticulturalist uh, in the 1850s, and it was a crossing of an Italian variety known as Schiava Grossa uh, or Grosso um, and Muscat of Alexander. And what the, the terminology that was used for both that one parent grape, uh, the Schiava Grosso, um, and for Black Muscat, there's a lot of overlap between the two. 
and so it's kind of my excuse. Um, um, and I think what happened is that one of the first people to introduce Vitis vinifera into, into the Willamette Valley was, was uh, Jean Mathiot, and I devote um, uh, a chapter to him in the book because he was a Frenchman, came over here, wanted to grow grapes, and uh, after he got himself settled on some land up, up near um, Butteville. But uh, uh, so Matthew went down to California, once he had the farm up and running, went down to California and bought lots of grapevines um, in 1858 and 1859. And he was kind of like the source uh, um, of a lot of grapes that were subsequently planted in, in, in the Willamette Valley. And um, I think he went down there wanting to buy Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and um, um, another red grape that uh, was popular in Switzerland, Pulsard, uh, because he, he was from the part of France that was just northwest of Switzerland. And these were the grapes he was familiar with. He got down there and discovered they didn't have any of that. So instead he got Pinot Meunier, this stuff. Um, and uh, um, Schiava Grossa, which was sold to him by its British name, Black Hamburg, and Chasselas. And you find old plantings of um, Chasselas scattered all over the Willamette Valley. And there are records of some people, a farmer near um, Albany, growing Pinot Meunier. And it's like, well, where, where would they have gotten these? Well, they got them from, from Jean, Jean Matiat. Um, so he had uh, an impact, not just in the sense that he had the first Vitus vinifera vineyard of any size, but he also distributed these grapevines, and they became kind of the standard grapes that people were growing, at least in this part of Oregon, mm -hmm. in the Willamette Valley. Mm -hmm. Down in southern Oregon, they were bringing stuff up direct from California. Um, out in the Columbia Valley, uh, the uh, people that were getting started out there were getting it from various sources, but the interesting thing about it is, is that the guy that really got all that started in the 1880s, he records that he bought his, his vines from John Matia. So the first grape vines that were planted in Washington State were actually acquired from Matthew here in the Willamette Valley. Now, none of that lasted because they didn't know how to protect the vines during the kind of winters that they get up there. And uh, in 1888, they had, well, I think it was 88 and 89, they had back-to-back -back hard, hard winters, and all the vines died. Uh, so they had to start from scratch after that. But the original, the original plantings in the Walla Walla Valley were from vines acquired from, from Matthew. So that was one of the interesting stories, was learning about him and, and, uh, uh, and the effect that he had on, on viticulture in the, in the Willamette. <clears throat> These vines here in this pergola, uh, I guess it's a, a grape arbor now, 
These are from the vines, some of the vines that he planted. Uh, this is Pinot Meunier, and uh, uh, his family lost the farm in the 1830s, and the whole hillside where the vineyard was, was grown over by um, trees and blackberry bushes and Douglas firs. And uh, in the 1970s, an individual by the name of Jack Myers wanted to start a vineyard. He didn't want to make wine, but he wanted to start a vineyard. Uh, and he looked at that hillside and said, it'd be a good spot for, um, um, for a vineyard. And so he bought it and he hired a crew and they went in and they were cutting on all the Douglas firs and clearing everything up. And they found some grapevines. And one of them was Pinot Meunier. And he didn't recognize the leaf. If you look at the leaves on these, they've got this kind of dusty finish and that looks kind of like they've been dusted with flour. And um, that's where the name comes from, Pinot Meunier. Meunier is a um, French word for miller, somebody who produces flour. And so he, he didn't know what it was. He thought it might be some kind of disease. So he took it down to OSU, and um, they looked at it and said, oh, it's, it's supposed to look like that. So he didn't want that vine where it was, but he had enough respect for um, uh, the history of the thing to take cuttings off of it, and he planted some of them on the property right near the entrance. And then later on, when he partnered with some people who wanted to start a, a winery there, and they had to widen the road, and cut those vines, he took more cuttings and they planted them on either side of the entrance to the, to the winery. And these vines are cuttings from those two. So this is probably one of the oldest, if not the oldest strain of, of Vitis vinifera in Oregon growing right here. And I received rooted vines from the people at Shampooey Winery, which is what's on the property now, uh, in July of 2019, and have been able to propagate these enough to the point where two years ago I gave some friend to a friend who has a little vineyard out in their sweet home, and he's got them growing. So regardless of what happens at Shampooey, where they've, they've got phylloxera in the vineyard, uh, hopefully this thing will, will will survive. But yeah, that was, that was, and nobody had found that one. The, there were, people knew about the Reuters, people knew about Peter Britt in Southern Oregon, but it's like nobody knew about the Matthews. You talked about the kind of the outset of understanding, kind of realizing the sort of seriousness of, of Oregon wine and the, the, the feuds and the, the, the you know, the, the facts and things like that. So tell me about navigating that, navigating uh, research and talking with people um, and dispelling some of those things that people truly believe. How do you handle that and how have you sort of handled um, people's reaction to it? Oh, I'm not sure I really want to get into that too much because some of it I didn't handle well. Now one thing that I probably w wish I had done differently was, uh, as I mentioned in the book, I explicitly make reference to what I call the myths of Oregon winemaking. And that's kind of provocative language. 
And um, after discovering that there were a number of people who um, were growing Pinot Noir and in the 1800s, I was kind of irritated with this, this whole thing. Let me back up for a moment. I've been asked if I'm a wine writer. I'm not a wine writer. I'm not going to, and, and there's a number of reasons I like to make that distinction. Uh, don't get me started on the subject of wine writers. I just will leave it at saying I'm not one and leave it at that. Um, I like to think of myself as a historian. You know, what I originally was going to be doing in, in, in my academic career. Um, and history is not events and dates. Events and dates and dating the, those events is just so that you have your sequence right. But if you're looking at history, you're trying to understand what was going on. Um, and so if you look at something like the discovery of North America, yeah, the Vikings got here a thousand years ago and they had a little settlement out there on Labrador or Nova Scotia, wherever it was, and they were there maybe 50 years and they left. And the stories of them doing this was considered myth for a long time until they discovered, archaeologists discovered, yeah, they were actually there. <coughs> so Christopher Columbus, technically speaking, didn't discover North America. So what? It's trivia. There was no lasting historical impact from the Vikings' discovery of North America. It's history trivia because Columbus coming over here triggered a wave of migration. It changed the world, completely changed the world. <coughs> so maybe Christopher Columbus wasn't number one, but it was his discovery that had the impact. Now, I think all this focus on who planted what first. I, coming from the perspective of a historian, I have trouble understanding it. And just a little bit too much focus on, on we're number one. We were the first. Um, I had some inkling that there might be some bad reactions. Um, for example, one of the books that I encountered when I was doing research was this book that was published in 2013 by Mark Hinton. Have you ever seen this book? Uh, again, it's from History Press, uh, American Palette series, which are, are what my books are. And he did uh, a good bit of research and a good bit of research into wine. Um, but not quite to the level that I did, but he reached some of the same conclusions. And he found records of, he looked at some of the same old documents and saw that, that um, the, 
that the Reuters were growing um, Pinot Noir. And so he makes this statement in this book, Forest Grove, here it is. He calls it the birthplace of Oregon Pinot Noir. And if I had been around at the time and reading that and in a position to talk to him, I would have asked him right up front, what the heck do you mean by that? And what are you basing that on? He was basing it on the fact that Ernest Reuter was growing Pinot Noir. Now, that got around and the city of Forest Grove put up a billboard outside of town saying the birthplace of Oregon Pinot Noir. And the person that was telling me about this was Jason Lett. And Jason told me that when he heard about it, he called Dyson Demera, who is the current owner of Hillcrest that was started by Richard Summer back in 1961 in Southern Oregon, and was the first of the modern era to grow Pinot Noir in, in Oregon. And told Demera about this, and it started a chain of events that eventually led to some legislator that was apparently friendly with Demera or somebody introducing a, um, um, a proposal or a, uh, what's the word, a decree or something like that, that the Oregon legislature actually passed recognizing um, Richard Summer and Hillcrest Winery is the, quote, birthplace of Oregon Pinot Noir. And if you've ever been down there, there's actually a sign that says that. And to me, it's like, again, what exactly does that mean? And I, and I deal with this in the book. I talk about this because if you're taking the perspective of a historian or you're interested in process, you're interested in trends, you're interested in something started and, and perpetuated itself through time and grew and developed into these things. Um, you don't care about who, who planted it first uh, any more than you care about the fact that the Vikings had a, a small trading post on a remote island in eastern Canada for 50 years, 1,000 years ago. Um, you know, it's interesting, there was a, a comment going around back when the Soviet Union fell where some people were calling it the end of history. And what they meant by that is if you look at modern history and the way historians, professional historians look at it, the last 200 years has been the evolution of isms. Democracy, socialism, communism, Nazism, whatever. And you see this development over the 1800s and the 1900s of, of nations that are built on the principles of these various isms. And that was creating the dynamic, that was what was creating the conflict between nations, generating wars and all of that stuff. And when communism fell, in Russia in 1991, it was like all that had come to an end. We're all going to be capitalists now. We're all going to pretend to believe in democracy. 
and that's just the end of the game. And so historians who had this sort of analytical bent uh, said, well, it's the end of history. And if you have that kind of perspective, and I do, what's important is when you say the birthplace of Oregon Pinot Noir, to me what that means is the evolution, the creation of the modern Pinot-centric Oregon wine industry. And that didn't happen in the 1800s in the Willamette or in southern Oregon by Peter and Britt. They might have been growing Pinot Noir, but I mean all that came to an end with Prohibition. So it was like the Vikings. It doesn't matter. Richard Summer was not really into Pinot Noir. He was a, he was a Riesling man. He had some Pinot Noir growing, but that was not really his deal. And a lot of people are not particularly impressed with the Pinot Noir that comes out of Southern Oregon anyway. So it was really David Lett and Charles Curry who kicked the whole thing off. And the influence they had, David Lett in terms of showing that you could make really good wine. Curry did not make good wine, but if you talk to people like David Adelsheim and, um, and the late uh, Dick Erath told me the same thing. Curry's contribution was that he recognized that there needed to be organization. And it was really Curry that got these guys together, meeting in the same place, sharing their experience and, and sharing what they, they learned and sharing equipment when necessary and creating a professional organization to look out for their interests. And a lot of people were very instrumental in contributing to that effort, David Adelsheim in particular. Um, and so if you want to talk about the birthplace of Oregon Pinot Noir in terms of the industry, it happened in the Dundee Hills of the Willamette Valley and to a lesser degree up near Forest Grove. And there were three, in my mind, three main individuals. There was David Lett, who was the, the, the artist. He was the one that showed, you can make great wine. Here, try this. 1975 South Block Reserve. Wow. There was Curry that said, we need to organize. We need to create an organization that looks out for our interests and, and gets legislation passed that, that promotes what we're doing and supports what we're doing. And there's the David Adelsheim who did all the footwork. Curry was the idea man, but if you look at what was going on, it was Adelsheim who was going around and getting wineries to sign off on the labeling laws, uh, the, uh, um, the, rezoning, the zoning measures to protect the industry. So I think those three individuals are really the three key players that got the whole thing off the ground. And it happened in the Willamette Valley. And it happened in the 1960s. And so that was the birthplace of Oregon, Oregon Pinot Noir. It's not who planted it first. That's just history trivia, you know. I even thought of uh, at some point of doing a PowerPoint presentation because I, I do give presentations. And actually doing a little Photoshop magic and I'll show a, 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 a 
uh, an image of, of um, Trivial Pursuit Organ Wine History Edition with one of the cards reading, where is the birthplace of, of Oregon Pinot Noir? Or where was it first planted? Because to me, it's just not that important. But you were asking about pushback. Well, yeah, you know, I'm not going to go into the details of this because I have to name individuals and what they did and what they said. But, um, yeah, there are people that are upset about that, that I said, I'm sorry, there were people in the 1800s who were growing Pinot Noir. And I don't see that as taking anything away from David Lett. He was a great man. He had vision. You know, Oregon probably would have eventually become a wine-growing area and uh, probably specializing Pinot Noir, but it would have happened later and it would have happened in a very different way if it hadn't been for David Lett. And so I don't feel that saying, well, yeah, there were a couple of guys growing it in the 1800s, takes anything away from him. But there are people who feel that it does. And I'm on their bad guy list. I'm also pretty sure I'm on the bad guy list up at, at David Hill Winery. Because I took away their non-existent metal. Because if you go out and do Google searches now on that same string, like I said earlier, you're not going to find it. You'll find it at David Hill on their website and you'll find it on Wikipedia, and I really need to learn how to, to fix that. But yeah, there's been, some, there's been some, some pushback, and this is one of the reasons I like to make sure people understand that I'm not a wine writer. So I will never moderate what I, what I say to accommodate what other people want to believe. If I believe something is true, I will say so, and I will say it in writing. Um, and for me to say, well, these guys w were, were not, w weren't really growing it because there's, old, there's no proof to quote one wine writer who I regard as a sycophant. Um, yeah, well, it depends on what your standard of proof is. And the fact that there are vineyard notebooks that David, that Peter Britt, actually his son, whose first name I can't recall, um, kept the, the vineyard journals for what Peter Britt was planting there in Southern Oregon. And it's in there. Franck Pinot, which was a common name for Pinot Noir back in those days. And that's what he was referring to because you can look through all 1,300 pages of Jancis Robinson's wine grape book. I've got a copy of it here. And you will not find Franck Pinot listed as an alternative name for any grape other than Pinot Noir. So that's proof to any reasonable person. What did you, <clears throat> what did you, what was the biggest takeaway for you from the book in terms of how the modern Oregon wine industry has come to be. How, you mentioned the three kind of, Let, Corey, Adelsheim as kind of the three kind of driving forces. What else did you learn about why the modern Oregon wine industry has evolved the way that it has? 
Well, the, the, the organizational efforts that they made early on in the 1970s all worked. You know, we have the strongest labeling laws in Oregon in the United States. They're comparable to what they have in France. Um, we have professional, you know, organizations which have coordinated a lot of the activities and been able to get legislation passed that otherwise they couldn't have gotten passed. Um, we, we got zoning changes made so that agricultural land could be preserved and preserved for, for wine growing, grape growing purposes. Um, and what really impressed me is that the cohesiveness um, of that effort and that it persisted as long as it did. Um, now, when I, if I, get around to revising this book, and I haven't talked to the publisher yet, because um, I would like to fix my, my mistakes. Uh, as I say, it's not many, but it's a few. But the biggest thing that's happened since this book came out, of course, has been this whole controversy that was generated by um, Wagner down there in California, who started bringing in Oregon grapes and producing wine labeled as Oregon Pinot Noir. But since he's not in Oregon, the labeling laws don't apply to him. And so if he wants to make it just 75% Pinot Noir, he can do that. And that's caused a schism within the industry. And whereas we used to have one Oregon Wine Growers Association um, in Oregon, we now have two. Now, I don't know quite all the details about this that I, I want to have to write about it accurately. And um, while he's still around to do it, I need to sit down with David Adelsheim and, and get his take on the whole thing and the story from his point of view. And I should probably go down to California and sit down with Wagner and get his point of view. And so the major addition in a second edition of my book would be a chapter on that. I already have the, have the, the title of the chapter picked out, which is A House Divided. Um, and I think this is a bad thing, what's happening, uh, because I think it was that cohesiveness, that single purpose that, that they had at one time that made the Oregon wine industry so, as successful as it is. And I think that, to borrow an old Southern expression, I think they're, I think they're cutting off their nose to spite their face. And I think in the long run, it's, it's going to have very negative ramifications. So you talked about some of the sort of the challenges of, of the work, both in the uh, distilling and in wine for, from your perspective. Uh, tell me about the rewarding parts. What are the most rewarding things from having these books published? Oh, from having them published. Um, uh, well, first thing I'd say is just the sense of accomplishment, of pulling this all together and, and putting it in one place. Um, you know, if you wanted to, if you were a student with an enology program or, or uh, the, the program you've got going there at Linfield University uh, and you wanted to, to do 
tried on the history of Oregon wine. You started researching it. You hit my book at some point very quickly. You've got it in your library. They've got it at the OSU library. Uh, they even have it at the Corvallis Public Library. Um, um, and in the course of Googling the book's title, I discovered that it's in libraries all over the place. Kalamazoo, Michigan has it in their library. Uh, that uh, you would find this book and you realize, oh, well, <laughs> this is kind of all I need right here. Um, I'm not saying that there isn't more to be discovered and there's some things that I w would like to research a little more fully that I didn't have the opportunity to when I was doing this book. Um, but just to accomplish that, like I said at the start of this interview, Books on the history of California winemaking. Books on a book on the history of Washington State winemaking. There wasn't one, but there is now, and I did that. Um, uh, of course, there's uh, the book royalties. They're not a lot. The only people that make a living on on nonfiction are people who publish five or six books a year. Uh, and of course, much historical nonfiction is written by PhDs at universities, and their main income, of course, is what the university is paying them. Because you're not going to get rich writing nonfiction. But it's nice to get that, that check a couple of times a year and go out to dinner and order a nice bottle of wine. So there's that. And uh, also just uh, the promotional value of the thing by doing presentations. Um, I get the word out that there's, there's Oregon uh, wine, that it's very good wine. And there are people in this state. I did a presentation last summer at the Rotary Club in Le Lebanon. And I get through with this. And there's this one woman who's like, well, how many wineries are, are in Oregon? I thought there was just the one. That big one that you see uh, south of Salem on I-5 when you're driving past. I figured that was it. And I said, no, ma'am, there are over 700 wineries in Oregon. And she's like, wow, I had no idea. <laughs> so even people in this state don't realize what we've got going here. So that's, that's I think that's probably the third thing I'd list is just letting, letting people know that we make good wine here and we've been doing it a lot longer than, than most people realize. How had, how, if at all, had the, has the research of the book uh, changed the way you enjoy wine personally? It has led me to some varieties that, um, that I didn't, I wasn't familiar with before. Um, I mentioned that uh, probably the most widespread white grape in, 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 in pre-prohibition Oregon was Chasselas, which is a Swiss variety, and it's one of the ones that um, that uh, Jean Mathiat was was planting and distributing. And uh, 
There's only a couple of people in this state that are growing it. Uh, the Irie grows it and David Hill grows it. They didn't bottle it themselves, but Teutonic was, was bottling it. Um, and I've gone through several bottles of the Irie Chasselas and really enjoyed it. Um, and I think the latest one to come out, the 2021, Jason Lett did a superb job with that. That's what's really not a very strongly flavored grape, but that 2021 Irie Chasselas is, it's, I would serve that at, at uh, uh, a fancy dinner party with, with, with no hesitation. That is really a superb wine. Um, I also, especially after I discovered that Black Hamburg was not Black Muscat, I started seeking out um, um, Schiava Grossa. They, all, all the ones you can find are from Italy, of course. Um, I mean, they grow it in West Germany, where it's known as Trollinger, and that's probably uh, why uh, Jean Mathiat recognized it. Um, was because that's just right across the river from where he was. Um, and so I've, I've gotten a few of those. Um, um, and I've developed, a, I guess, a little more appreciation for uh, some of the wines from, from some of the areas. Um, I think it's in researching the book, going to Southern Oregon, visiting wineries down there and sampling some of the wines they were doing. Uh, it's increased my interest in, in certain varieties that, uh, that, that, uh, that they grow. Um, Tempranillo, for example, which uh, um, no, I'm drawing a blank. Abacella, uh, yes, um, has, been, has been growing. And uh, I think I've told you this little interesting side story that um, um, after the book came out, I got an email from um, Hilda Jones, well, wife of Earl Jones, yes, excuse me, and um, identifying herself as, as co-owner and, well, we liked your book, and then she goes on to say, and you probably remember me as Hilda Skagfield because I lived one block down the street from you in Tallahassee, Florida, and we went to high school together. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so. It's a small world sometimes. Yeah, it's a small world. <laughs> You've talked a little bit about um, sort of the changes in the industry. I'm curious, as you look at Oregon wine now, where do you see it going? What do you see coming down the road for the industry? Well, and I address this in the book, I think the biggest challenge is climate change. Things are heating up. This valley is going to heat up. And um, they're going to have to do several different things. If they're going to keep growing it here in the valley, they're going to have to develop clones that have a longer growing season. Because it means the whole rationale that David Lett and Charles Curry had for coming up here to Oregon to plant Pinot Noir was that the growing season was matched to the characteristics of the grape itself. And we had this perfect match here in Oregon. Our climate was just like that of Burgundy. 
Burgundy is facing the same challenge because it's getting heating up everywhere. Um, and so you either have to change where you're planting the grapes or you're going to have to change the grapes themselves or both. So they're going to have to develop clones of Pinot Noir which require a longer growing season and can tolerate a longer growing season and or they're going to have to start pushing up into the hills. And you see some of that. One of, one of the more interesting vineyards I visited is Namaste out there near north of Dallas. Um, and I've been up there. You're at fairly high altitude and you can feel that wind coming in from the west. And in years past, the owner, uh, but he has told me that in, in years past, he's, he's had problems with ripening. But lately, that hasn't been a problem. So that's kind of a, that's kind of a, a signal flag that places like that is where you need to start developing in the new vineyards. And some of the wineries like uh, DDO, Domain Druin, Oregon, um, that's exactly what they're doing. They're putting new vineyards into those cooler areas higher up into the hills. Last question for you then. Uh, you talked a little bit about um, your, your, your future project. Uh, anything else on the horizon for yourself, either personally or professionally that you're looking ahead to? Um, well, I'm wrapping up this project, which is a kind of a photojournalism of, of um, uh, the Eastern Florida panhandle, handle, panhandle, excuse me, which uh, people that are of biological bent, my neighbor, for example, is with the OSU, um, He's faculty with the OSU Forestry Department. He's aware of this. But it's one of the five biological hotspots in North America. And there's an incredible level of, of diversity there. And so it's something that I was, was learning a lot about when, when I was growing up in, in my time in, in, in North Florida. Um, and I don't know that there's going to be any kind of marketable product from this, but it did, just as researching these books, gave me an idea for a novel. Um, uh, I got the idea for the, uh, the, the novel about um, um, Fern Hobbs from doing the distilling book. And this research has given me uh, an idea for a book about a, uh, a mixed race family, uh, Creek Indian and, and white people. Um, that was in North Florida back in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And it's a fascinating story. Uh, these people became quite wealthy despite the fact that they were mostly Native American. Um, and uh, uh, so there's a potential for a novel there. Um, so I don't really see, I think I'm going to shift more over to fiction now, but it's still going to be historical novels. My model for uh, for the kind of books I want to write is Connacht Golden. He's a British author and he's written books about the Roman Empire, about the Mongols, and they're fiction, but they are as much as possible based on fact. And he actually does a little section at the end of every book where he tells you 
where he's deviated from fact. Because, for example, um, there was one English king back during the War of the Roses who went through two phases of basically being catatonic. And just to make the book flow a little better, he kind of collapses that into a single thing. But he tells you that he did that. Um, and so, you know, in order to tell a good story, following Mark Twain's dictum, never let the facts get in the way of good story, uh, I'm willing to apply that to a, a work of fiction. I would never apply it to something like this. The facts are preeminent. But if it says a novel on the cover, then you can, you've got a little flexibility. Um, so I've got the book about Fern Hobbs. I have another idea for a, a, a series of books um, where the main character is a, <laughs> a, samar, a, a samurai who finds himself locked out of Japan when the Japanese emperor locked, blocked all contact with the West in the 1600s. And Japanese who were out of Japan at the time couldn't get back in. Um, and um, he ends up finally getting a, a job um, uh, as just uh, one of the guys with a sword to defend a Spanish galleon from pirates. And so he's on a boat that's a ship that's crossing the Pacific. And the route that these guys took was across the northern Pacific. And they had to get to Mexico before the storm started to kick in. And if they waited too long, they could get shipwrecked. And in fact, one did. One got shipwrecked on the Oregon coast in the mid-1600s. And um, there's a real good article about that in Oregon's Historical Quarterly. And so I'm going to tell this guy's story. And there he is, a samurai shipwrecked on the coast of Oregon in the 1600s. So that's an idea I've got. And uh, I'm thinking about then a book, possibly a series of books, about this Creek family, this Muscogee family in North Florida that was making tons of money um, trading with, with, with the, 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 the native tribes and uh, raising cattle and, and, um, and basically becoming the richest family in the southeast before they had to move to Oklahoma. So probably going to focus more on historical fiction at this point because Frankly, that's where the money is. I think these were worthwhile to do. They got the story out there. Uh, I think they're both good starting points for somebody. If somebody else wants to take the baton on, on the history of Oregon wine, take mine as a starting point, I say knock yourselves out, do it. Perfect, a lot, lot, lot coming up, that's exciting. Uh, is all the questions that I have for you? Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything that we didn't cover today that you'd like to cover? I don't think so. Excellent. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time and for sharing your story with us and for your friendship over the years. I enjoyed having you as researcher in the archives for your book and, and yeah, keeping and, in touch since. So. And I do. I, that's the one thing I, I, I did meant to say something about. I want to thank you and all of your assistants. Uh, without access to the the... the the archives there at um, 
Um, at Lidfield, I don't think uh, the, the book would have been nearly as good as it is. Excellent. That's what we're here for. I'm glad to have helped. So with all that, let you off the hook. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.